Welcome to the Aquafiles. Our listeners know that the American College of Real Estate Lawyers is a national organization of 1,000 distinguished practitioners fostering the exchange of the most sophisticated ideas and experiences in the development, financing, and investment in real estate. We continue our series of podcasts with leading individuals in commercial real estate who have built the companies that have shaped the industry to share reflections on their careers and predictions for the future. Today, we're pleased to welcome Diane Hoskins, co-CEO of Gensler, the leading global architecture design and planning firm with 53 offices and 6,000 employees around the world. And in her free time, Diane is also the global chair of ULI. Thanks for joining us today, Diane, for this podcast. Well, Jay, thank you so much for inviting me. It's such an honor to be part of uh, this illustrious uh, list of people who you've brought on the show. Um, And I I really do appreciate the chance to uh, share with your audience um, because, look, we're on the design side, but it is about um, uh, really what's going on in real estate that ultimately shapes what we're doing in design and maybe we can talk about design of law firms also uh which you know i think is just so interesting and how it is transforming great so before we chat about your incredible career at gensler let's roll back the tape a little bit talk tell us about where you grew up what influenced you to focus on architecture and how you got to gensler Sure. Um, Well, I'm from Chicago, which should kind of say it all because, you know, we think (laughs) that someone's from Chicago, that it's like the most amazing architecture in the world. Um, And, you know, uh, I do think that, you know, looking at that skyline every day definitely influenced me uh, to be just, you know, really interested in being part of making buildings and making spaces and shaping spaces. Um, you know, I think I must have had the, you know, the nature and the nurture because naturally I was always drawn to, you know, building things with blocks, even that might have been a boy's toy, but, you know, my parents didn't care about gender when it came to toys. And I definitely, of the five kids, gravitated to all of the blocks and the building materials and, you know, any toy that had to do with making things, including Barbies, which, you know, I had three other sisters. So we were like champion Barbie house builders uh, of epic levels. I won't even get into it. But, you know, it was really about creating places and experiences, which we kind of, you know, uh, uh, enacted with our dolls. But in many ways, it was kind of that interesting mix of sort of the exterior, the interior, the human experience, how you think about space and what it can unlock in terms of what you do um, is something I've always been intrigued with. So, you know, I was really, and my my good friends always uh, would make fun of me as a kid because they would want to be a lawyer one year and a doctor the next year and an engineer the following year and, you know, heaven knows what the next year. And I always said I wanted to be an architect from like, you know, third grade on and never change my story. Um, and so, you know, kind of drove hard in that direction. But, you know, like all of us, we explore many things, you know, when we're growing up. And I was, you know, my mom was one of these super creatives and had gone to school for art and really believed in kind of this um, creativity as the basis of, of life. And so she really exposed us to art, music, 
anything creative. So we all played instruments. We all, you know, kind of had a broad education in that way. And I really did get into music also as part of my, you know, early life. This kind of intersects with my story because, you know, I, I um, uh, took private lessons. I played French horn uh, as one of my instruments. And really, you know, that was kind of my my main focus. And I had a great teacher. Um, you know, years later, I Googled her, you know, just to see whatever happened to my French horn teacher. And I had no idea because when she was my teacher and I'm, you know, 13 years old or whatever, um, and she was an older person at that point in her life, I, you know, she was amazing. I admired just, you know, her ability to to produce sound that was just so inspiring. Um, but I didn't realize at that time that she was the first woman to ever play a brass instrument in the Chicago Symphony. Oh, wow. First chair. And um, of any symphony in the world in that in that position. Um, and so she is she was an incredible. Uh, kind of uh, trailblazer for women in music and certainly the larger brass instruments. Um, you know, and I'm just a kid kind of learning with this wonderful teacher. Uh, and I remember when I was applying for college and um, making decisions about where I was going to go. And I only applied really to a couple of schools. And one of the schools was, you know, one of our great universities in Illinois and um, and the other school I had applied to, which was just kind of out of a whim was MIT. And I, I happened to, you know, get into both. And, um, you know, uh, I was really not interested in, well, I shouldn't say I wasn't interested, but I really wasn't leaning toward, uh, you know, MIT because all my friends were going to this other school that I was, you know, I had gotten into. And I remember it was like on one of these Saturdays where I'm in there for my horn lessons. It wasn't a horn lesson anymore that day. It was like life lesson. Mm -hmm. And she just really told me I had to get out of my comfort zone and I needed to go into, a, you know, into, uh, you know, and as immersive a learning experience of new things possible. And that's how I was going to have a great career. And that's how I was going to do great things. And I listened to her and, you know, took the road less traveled and it made all the difference. Um, you know, I went to to MIT and, you know, at a time when it was uh, very much, uh, in fact, in my um, uh, freshman class, it was 11 to one uh, men to women. And that was the nature of the school overall, even worse when you went to the other, you know, uh, older uh, classes. Um, and then, of course, from a, um, you know, I'm a black woman. And so I, I was one of maybe four or five uh, black women in a class of a thousand students. Um, so even beyond just, you know, kind of the MIT mystique of extreme torture, uh, it was also, you know, being, um, you know, uh, a unique person in that environment. And so I, I really feel like I did have that uh, wonderful, immersive experience of being outside of my comfort zone all the time. I mean, all the time uh, for that entire experience. And 
and learning to use that as a, uh, a way to just, you know, drive and propel toward anything, whatever goal it is, not worrying about being perfect anymore, which was so much, you know, uh, when you're at the top of your class and all of that and everything looks so shiny, to really be okay with not being shiny, to really be okay with trying and, and almost getting there or doing something and it not necessarily being received, but really always kind of pushing and exploring. Um, so I, I, I consider that a formative experience in many ways because um, being in architecture, again, you know, um, I don't have to say, uh, it's probably similar to law, but maybe even more extreme because we are also part of the construction industry, which, you know, still is an industry that um, uh, is, you know, very much uh, lopsided on a, on a gender standpoint. So, you know, again, I got so comfortable with that uh, um, strength that it built in my identity and uh, comfortable with the uncomfortable that I, you know, I would say um, stepping into the doors at Skidmore, Owens and Merrill right after college was, you know, um, just a great place for me to be. Uh, you know, SOM was known for, uh, at that time, almost inventing the, the super tall um, skyscrapers. Um, and it was sort of in that time in, you know, in the 80s when it was um, really, at that time, the biggest firm in the world and certainly doing the most important work in the world. Uh, and, you know, happened to work in the studio with the only woman partner within uh, SOM, which, and she was a, a wonderful mentor. Um, and, you know, uh, just again, set the example of many things that I believe strongly in as a leader. Um, she really connected with people on a personal level. And I feel like, you know, again, when you lead, it can be about vision, it can be about a lot of things, but ultimately it's people to people and getting to know people and, you know, connecting with them on a human level is uh, something I saw, you know, in Diane, her name was Diane also, and something that always, you know, made me uh, feel great about, you know, working hard, staying up all night, whatever it was that, you know, that you do as a young professional in any profession to really, you know, learn your craft and learn it well. Um, so, you know, again, I, I feel like I had a, a really great start. I, I sort of took a turn um, in that I, you know, got involved in, you know, the, the uh, uh, design uh, and architecture world at a very high level um, from day one. And I was exposed to the client side of things. And really got very curious uh, as to, you know, who these clients were and what was behind their engagement with uh, the design, uh, uh, you know, side of the equation. So I wanted to go to business school and decided to, to you know, kind of do business school and, and kind of focus in on real estate while I was in business school. And so I went to UCLA Anderson School, which, you know, was a, another great experience, especially coming from the East Coast to go to the West Coast uh, for graduate school was like, um, there couldn't have been two things more different. 
<laughs> uh, and it was really good. I mean, it was it was a great experience for me. And again, a massive learning experience. I hadn't lived on the West Coast before. Uh, there was a huge focus on the Pacific Rim countries and what was happening in Japan at that time. And a lot of um, different thinking than I had ever been exposed to, global thinking. Um, and out of, out of uh, graduate school, I went to work in real estate. I, I actually, you know, did not go back into design, but went to work for um, actually a large developer, uh, Olympia and York, um, which uh, at that time was probably, as you know, one of the largest developers in the world uh, at that time doing uh, Canary Wharf. They had done the World Financial Center and, you know, so forth. Um, and that was, you know, again, just one of these amazing experiences, very much deep into the pool an amazing group of people. Um, I, uh, you could not have, uh, you know, asked for a more diverse group of professionals. They believed in, you know, a, a, a kind of ethic around diversity that we hear about and think about today, but was, you know, very much a part of how um, uh, ONY ran their business. Um, it's unfortunate they kind of blew up in the Oh, late, late eighties, early nineties. Um, were, were you there when Pat Goldstein was there? I don't know Pat Goldstein. So I'm, I'm not knowing that was, name. But, was a lot yeah. Susan something. And I can't think of her name. Right. Fine. Yeah. Susan Fine, I think was Fine. one of their, uh, lead, um, attorneys actually in New York. Um, and, you know, again, just extraordinary people that um, was, you know, again, something I, I really cherished and enjoyed on every level. Um, and so, you know, again, as I mean, and hopefully we'll talk about economic cycles, but besides their own sort of, you know, undoing, it really was that kind of SNL crisis moment that was the you know sucking sound for the entire industry at that time. And certainly un, unwound ONY as well as many, you know, development firms. But it was also, a, a, I, I guess, fortuitous. Um, uh, I probably would have worked at ONY the rest of my life if, if they had, you know, kind of survived. Because I, I loved their big thinking. And as I said, they really believed in, in building this incredibly diverse uh, community of, of, of professionals. But the, you know, the silver lining was um, I moved back into design uh, after, you know, sort of the implosion of, of real estate in the uh, uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and it was, you know, fortuitous for me in many ways. Uh, it kind of led to where I am today and, at Gensler. But but also, I, I think it was sort of a... Um, it forced me to realize that I loved, you know, the sort of 360 understanding, sort of the developer, the occupier, the design. But I really believe strongly that my best position to address the ecosystem was from the design position. But to understand all of these other parts, to really understand how it all comes together, that was kind of, uh, that was what I probably gained from that four or five year journey of going to business school, going to work in real estate at ONY, and then coming back into design kind of as a different person. And with the understanding of how it all fits together, um, 
some, you know, quant skills and a bit of management capability. Um, I was kind of ready to lead, uh, you know, the practice um, and led a small practice of a firm um, called A. Epstein and Sons, which was out on the West Coast. It was the it was part of a Chicago based firm, uh, which still exists. Uh, again, another really interesting firm. Um, uh, engineering, um, uh, uh, as well as industrial engineering, as well as uh, design. So I led, I, you know, there weren't a lot of places to go work <laughs> in a recession. So, but I was able to, you know, get this wonderful position there um, in the LA office. And, um, you know, you never know what's going to happen. My, my boss ended up leaving and the Chicago folks asked me to leave the office, uh, sort of in this, you know, moment of it all was going to implode. Right. So Diane, can you take this on? Um, and, you know, I, of course you say yes, but I was also hoping that they were going to find somebody permanently for that role uh, within a matter of weeks or at least months. And, you know, lo and behold, a few months later, they were like, well, can you just stay in the role? And, you know, it was it was obviously an extraordinary opportunity. It was a small office um, and got smaller as we were going along because it was a recession. This was like 91, 92. And, um, you know, you could just feel the, you know, the quicksand that you were standing on. But I learned a lot about leading in adversity. Um, again, it was, you know, going back to my sort of comfort with discomfort. We got down to maybe 11 people uh, in the whole office. And, um, I learned a lot about, you know, marketing, winning work, going after work, whether it was beautiful or not. I mean, I did fire stations. I did, you know, renovations of schools, stuff at the L.A. port, you know, got on every, um, you know, schedule for ongoing services. I could get on, you know, on and on and was able to just and I had some great people that we just, you know, went all out really building, rebuilding this company. Um, and really were, I mean, we tripled, double, quadrupled in like 18 months, 60, 70 people. Um, and really leveraging, you know, the power of wonderful technologies that were starting to come out in the mid nineties as well. Uh, so that was kind of my taste of, you know, you don't have to have a great market to have a great office. You don't have to have growth in the market to create growth um, that you kind of, you know, again, obviously there's limits to all of this, but you can you can create success through strategy. And, you know, and so that, you know, and, and really through people and, you know, in some ways of thinking about hiring that, yeah, I mean, you know, again, we're talking about professional services here. I wouldn't hire anybody who didn't come with a client following, right? So that's another way to really build your office is to go after people in your competitors' offices who are bringing in the work. And, you know, I mean, again, it was survival as far as I was concerned. And so it really was like, okay, what, you know, what do you need to come over and how do we create a great opportunity for you um, to build your business here and, you know, in our firm. And, um, you know, that mixed with, we're going to do some things nobody has ever done before here in Los Angeles and, and really 
being open to like just reinventing everything. Um, you know, through a lot of just uh, soul searching, me and my husband decided, you know, we didn't want to live the rest of our lives in L.A. And we made the big move out here to to Washington in 95 and uh, which, man, is almost 30 years ago. I can't even believe it. And I'm sorry, I'm going the long way on this, but <laughs> maybe you want to ask some other questions. <laughs> but long story short, 95, we moved here. You know, Art Gensler asked me to take on leading this office. Um, and, you know, uh, after, you know, a lot of like, oh, my God, I don't know if I'm ready to lead another office. Thank God I said yes. And ultimately in 2005, Art asked me to be one of the co-CEOs here. And, you know, we've had a great almost 20 year run as co-CEOs of Gensler. Well, it's interesting too, how you touched on this, right? How discomfort, right? Creates perspective and helps you find new opportunity, right? That's right. It's right. You know, it, unfortunately, I mean, it's, you almost wish like, man, does it have to always get so uncomfortable before you find the great, you know, gem, but, um, but thank God that in those times that um, there's an opportunity that if you can kind of get past the panic, that there is something really exciting out there. Right. So, right. So, so like, I mean, I've said this a bunch of times when we were leading through and you, you've been through almost as many cycles as some of us have, right? And each time you come through one of these cycles, obviously some people get hurt. I used to say um, to our team, professional services team, the innovators are the one, and the adapters are the ones that are going to survive here and come out better on the other side. And, and I, to me, one of the hallmarks of Gensler, for sure, the last 10 years, if not more than that, has been your innovation and thoughtfulness and being thought leaders in the industry and not just for architecture, but for, as you say, real estate design. So how, how did that come about? And, and, and how have you led that with Andy? And, and, and what has that meant to Gensler's um, brand and, and, and impact in the industry? You know, I, I look back, I mean, we have a great, an incredible founder, Art Gensler. Um, he would have been a great person for you to interview. What an amazing man. Um, he started our firm in 1965. And, you know, his background, he'd gone to Cornell, you know, one of the high elite. Oh, all right. There we are. Um, you know, amazing elite university, one of the top, if not the top architecture, you know, schools at that time. Um, so, you know, here's our uh, you know, graduating with his, you know, uh, classmates, they all go and, and create these sort of white shoe firms or go work for these elitist folks. And what does Art Gensler do? He goes to a plate, to a space that no architects would ever touch, which is interior architecture for companies, right? It, it wasn't even a profession. It wasn't even a branch of art. It was just like no, you know, self-respecting architect would do that for a living. And, but that's where art went. That's, that's the kind of, that's the business that he started and he and his wife, you know, uh, this was a, you know, family, family run business. They, they started this, this uh, company. I think he, 
you know, if you listen to him and he, he would do a great job telling his story, you know, every year to our new, new uh, senior associates. But, and so we've all heard it a thousand times, but, you know, he was someone who just, again, went outside of the North. That was just his natural way was not to go with the crowd, not to go to the red ocean, but to go to the blue ocean. And to your, to answer your question, that's in the genome of our firm. And, you know, art again, went to where there wasn't a lot of other architects, you know, in that space, but there sure was a lot of need. And there was a very sophisticated client that was willing to pay for your services and an opportunity to bring extraordinary design along with understanding of organizational dynamics, understanding of almost a city planning mindset of how you lay things out. And, you know, again, you know, business, uh, you know, uh, theory, if you will, as well as uh, functionality of a business model. A again, bringing all of those issues together and frankly, space that had to perform along, you know, uh, for a company to deliver on its bottom line, not be, you know, again, we're not going to gold plate, but we're not going down to, um, you know, folding chairs. And, you know, where do you, where did we want to be and how do you create a place that is going to enable an organization to thrive in its own unique competitive space? And really in so many ways, Art Gensler, and, and there were probably a couple of other architects who started down this road at that time. They created what we all know about, of, you know, interior workspace, offices, people think of offices, so much of that, again, from the more complex side of this, it came from really our firm and others that, that started to understand um, the incredible opportunity. People spend more of their life in their office space. And again, we can talk about where we're at today in, in that journey. But the fact is we spend more than half of our lives, our waking lives working, wherever that ends up being. And doesn't, you know, again, how do you enable human beings to be able to thrive in their work, enjoy their work, be stimulated, inspired, um, create community connection, you know, well-being through design. So, you know, again, the, the innovation that this has needed, the invention of this profession uh, has been an important part of who we are. And we've, you know, grown that and invested in that um, at, you know, in an exponential way, I would say in the last, you know, 15, 20 years where we started the Gensler Research Institute, where we've, you know, invested in research on how people use space, not just workspace, but airports, retail space, you know, again, all the gamut of typologies of, of design and how can we, through listening and observing, be able to elevate what we do also recognizing that, you know, culturally these things are in flux and they've always been in flux. And now we're seeing, you know, that uh, those changes are happening at an even quicker pace. So we, you know, again, it kind of goes to our, our founding and our, our origins. Um, 
but also, you know, as a firm, we believe strongly that, you know, our clients hire us also to bring knowledge to, to, to you know, add to the conversation of context um, to absolutely understand how to uh, come to the table. They don't need to necessarily bring us fully up to speed. We are, you know, we understand their, their industry. We've done our homework but we're ready to really understand, you know, what is it that they are want to um, address in terms of, uh, you know, particular areas of, of you know, uh, special expertise, their unique culture and what that means and how do we help them to get a handle on that um, and amplify that to their advantage. You know, again, uh, we ex we are as excited about kind of the thought leadership and knowledge creation as we are about the design part, and um, you know we're we're you know add into that sort of technologies that are evolving. Um, I think we're seeing you know uh, greater and greater ability to create great places. Right. I, I mean, it's it's funny as you, you know. I do think back and think, you know, what was an interiors architect? Right. The first time I met somebody probably from Gensler back in the 80s, and because you always think of architects as doing buildings, whether right, whatever right. kind of building, like you said, from firehouses to office buildings. But then there were people specializing and becoming very proficient, like Gensler and some others, of course, as you said, in interiors architecture. Right. Um, and and just what you say, the, the common bond here on the professional services piece is the best lawyers are the ones who understand their client's business. You know, you know, you know, you can easily sit back in the room and go draft some documents and you can do that, but you're a much better advisor consigliare if you really understand the business. And of course the architects, the interiors architects, right? Much more than the building architects, right? Had to come in and do programming and right. figure out what was going on and what was this business doing right or wrong when they were going to go to some new space and, and you guys were terrific at it. Exactly. Well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, and I appreciate, you know, the extraordinary capability of, of our folks um, and their tenacity and curiosity to learn the, the businesses of their clients. In fact, you know, Art used to say, you know, we're students of our clients' businesses and, that really is, I would say, of all the expertises and, and you know, uh, what we try to hire for are people who really are interested in being students of their clients' businesses. So so you've seen unbelievable evolution, which you don't need me to tell you, in the office space design world from, you know, packing people in to open space to large offices, single offices, lots of things. Um, and we could spend hours talking about, you know, each cycle um, in the law firm world and also I mean, law firm world's different for sure. I, I go to these sessions in New York where I hear non-law firm corporations talk about their um, square footage per person, right? I hear Google say, you know, we're at 74 square feet per person trying to drive down lower than that. And of course, you know, we're lucky if we're at five to 600 square feet per lawyer. So maybe that's three or 400 per person. But talk a little bit about what you've learned and seen here and all this thought leadership you and your team have been doing as we've come through COVID and, and, and how that's affecting office design and, of course, all the clients that, that we represent and that you represent and work with on office buildings and this 
very challenging time period we're in on, on office building commitments. Yeah, it's, it is a really interesting time. Um, for us, probably one of the most exciting times ever, right? I mean, uh, used to go to a, you know, cocktail party and you say you design, in, you know, interior office space and, you know, people don't even click into it. Now it's like you're the center of the table. Everyone wants to know, what are you guys seeing? What are you hearing? What are you thinking? Are, da, 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 da. are people coming back? Are they ever going to come back? I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, because we've all been to the the dinners where that ends up being the main conversation. Um, you know, it is definitely, I think, I'm going to try to answer your question, but I, you know, there's so much here um, and we could really spend quite a bit of time on this overall topic. Uh, you know, um, it's still about winning the talent war. I mean, at the end of the day, that is, you know, that's the table stakes that every organization we work with is still uh, focused on. And, um, you know, if you want want to talk about in particular in professional services, you know, that's uh, times 10. Um, you know, we are all in that extreme talent war right now. But I would say it's the same in tech. It's the same in, you know, um, uh, life sciences, it, you know, again, it is very much a talent war. And, and so, you know, that's kind of on one end of the spectrum and that has some good parts to it. And that has some, you know, kind of twisted parts to it as well, because it's because of the talent war that companies are very, you know, careful and afraid and all of this about uh, saying to people, we need you back at the office or not, because it's that, oh, we don't want to lose people and it's a talent war. So we're not going to do that, even though it might be um, diminishing the effectiveness of our people. Um, and we can talk about that in a moment. But, you know, so it's the talent war. It's always about increasing productivity. You know, it's always about how do we do more uh, for less, you know, that is in, in every organization, um, you know, uh, increasing innovation, increasing uh, value in the output, but also doing it in a more effective, you know, efficient way and, and more productive. Um, you know, it's about leveraging technology and how does our space allow us to leverage technology and even utilize technologies that might be coming as well. And, you know, we're, um, you know, the word growth is not so much a part of the lexicon right now, but I am sure that as we start to see um, uh, the interest rate conversation uh, tamp down a bit, that the word growth is going to be used a lot more. So, you know, what this ultimately looks like is a, uh, and you know, there's sort of the macro and, and we can talk about it, but I, you know, I also like to dig down and ask, you know, 10 of our top principals who handle uh, workplace projects, what's going on? Tell me what's going on with your clients right now. What are the, what are the conversations right now that you're having? Are they reducing space? How are they coming up with how much space they need? Are they anticipating growth at all in the future, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
And it's it, when you really put your finger on the pulse of what's happening right now, um, it's it's a little bit of a different story than, oh my goodness, 50% of people don't wanna come to work or 20% of this happens or 20% or 50% of that. Because there's a difference between attendance and the issues around vacancy. Um, and, you know, we've conflated vacancy and attendance and, and actually they're, they're different dynamics. Um, so on the vacancy side, which has to do with leases and what's happening with, you know, patterns as it relates to leasing, um, certainly the biggest, you know, big macro is around the story of flight to quality that, um, you know, there's some great data out there showing that, um, and I, I will get the time frame wrong, so I, I can't remember if it's the last two years, three years, four years, whatever, over, a, you know, the last uh, few years, all of the net positive um, uh, leasing uh, absorption, let's call it, was in buildings 15 years uh, or younger. And then all of the that buildings 50, older than 15 years have had negative absorption, period. That if you look at the total of uh, leasing in buildings 15 years or older, if you add it all up, it's a negative number. Um, so it shows you there's, there's definitely a significant issue around obsolescence of buildings and age of buildings. And you know, we can kind of talk about what is going on, what's driving that. I mean, you'll ask people like Boston Properties and they'll say, and, you know, we're continuing to see lease rates go up in our buildings. Um, and we're seeing, you know, low vacancy in those buildings. So it's not they're dropping their numbers to capture, you know, folks who are getting in on the bargain rate, <laughs> uh, you know, while it lasts. Um, this is actually, you know, we're seeing uh, uh, just a definitive flight to quality for a whole host of reasons. And, you know, experience the, the kind of, of spaces these buildings also have you know, uh, amenities in the building. And we can talk about, you know, the expectation of amenities in buildings now. Um, amenities that actually in many ways as a tenant, although some of the need for you to build those large conference spaces or for you to build the big coffee area because the building has invested in all of these, you know, uh, space that you get to use, great gym, et cetera. But it's you know, basketball courts. It's, you know, um, uh, roof, um, you know, out, outdoor spaces and, uh, you know, the kind of places that people. So there's definitely a flight to quality. Um, we're also seeing and, you know, speaking of law firms a little bit uh, and law firms tend to be in, in many ways kind of that top of the spear of um uh you know quality of of space and i'll say law firms professional services in general are are usually looking you know uh at the top tier product out there and what we are seeing is as much as there's you know a flight to quality uh, that they're uh, all looking at is that they're also looking at uh value and we're seeing what I would call the B plus building, being able to attract 
professional services companies because they're investing in the great rooftop, the amazing amenities. So while the A is sort of the natural, um, uh, you know, magnet for professional services um, uh, companies, we're starting to see professional services and other companies pitting, you know, an A building against a B plus, and that B plus putting in that extra amenity investment and being able to, um, you know, win those tenants. And so I think there's there's a great story of the opportunity for the B plus, you know, that it's not, uh, you know, a, a lost cause, but it is going to take investment. And, you know, again, this whole thing of valuations and how much should you spend in that kind of investment? I think that story is still going to be playing out over the next few months. Um, but anyone who picks up a BB plus, there really is opportunity if the investment is made to be able to attract, you know, great tenants and probably at, you know, um, levels, you know, from a, from a lease rate standpoint, at least an A minus, you know, lease rate, if not top of the market lease rate, you know, the challenge is the B, B minus and C plus and C buildings, which there is a lot of in many of our markets, you know, we are right now um, doing, I, I heard the statistic from our, our team that um, we've reached our thousandth study of an office to, to uh, residential analysis. So we've done over a thousand buildings now looking at their feasibility from going from an office building to, you know, an, an apartment building. Um, and we've developed an algorithm where we're able to, by taking, you know, certain information, um, of course, the, you know, bay depths and floor to ceiling heights and, you know, where the, the loading dock is and all these other factors and be able to basically come up with a grading system um, of a zero to 100 points and be able to, you know, definitively tell an owner that you know your building scored over 80 it's a it's highly feasible from a physical building standpoint that this building could become you know a successful residential product um you know if it's 75 to 80 it's kind of iffy below 75 you know if it's a super tight market where people don't mind really skinny units and a few odd turns uh, that might be okay, um, you know, like in a New York or something where, you know, everything sells. Um, but, you know, again, as those numbers get lower and lower, the feasibility of a product that's going to be able to compete or even pass zoning is is going to be less and less likely. But, you know, again, it's that's the that's the future potential, though, of the kind of B down down the road, you know, B and below. And then, you know, there's... Um, We've seen where schools have, have, have picked up, uh, you know, some of these office buildings. We've seen where, um, you know, daycare is I, we, around the corner. Actually, the building that Shaw Pittman was in actually has a daycare in it. Um, and I think that's a, a very large part of the building right now on that ground floor uh, building, you know, that that uh, was an incredible office space uh, for many, many years here in the D.C. Uh, region, you know, area here. 
Um, in fact, there's a lot of buildings here, even within, you know, walking distance of where I'm sitting that are right now in construction, turning into residential. So you're going to see a transformation of this community as well, as we start to see people who are living here, not just on the West End, but actually, you know, right off of 20th and K and all of the, you know, up and down K Street and L Street is now, you know, residential is going in. So it's just going to transform DC. This is, uh, you know, it's going to be rugged um, from a valuation standpoint, but there's also going to be an enormous amount of value created. And so I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's good for our cities because it's creating a better city for people. And, uh, you know, this isn't like, sorry to say, white flight or something where there's like this negative thing driving it. Yes, there's something tough that's driving it. But golly, you know, some of these B and C buildings, there has been a need to deal with it for a long, long time. Owners have held on to these. They've wanted it to be kind of the generational pass on to their grandchildren and so forth. Um, but the truth of the matter is these are places in our cities that need investment and investment has not been made. And this obsolescence and deferred decision making, you know, unfortunately is, is coming at a tough time and, you know, uh, no one wants to see anyone get hurt. Um, but I, at the end of the day, um, I think there's a transformational part of this that is going to be a regeneration uh, getting back to the workplace, and this is where, you know, my prediction is because, okay, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing from our folks is that the midsize, let's, let's say law firms, midsize law firms in many cases are reducing their space as they go to their next space right now. The larger law firms are increasing their space. And it's really interesting because I was looking at a list um of of firms you know uh i'm not going to say names uh but you know one is like a 30,000 square foot they're going to be 98% of their current in their new uh you know again another one that's um uh, 200,000 feet it's going into space 74% then you look at this you know as you get down lower on this there's a, a user at five, basically 600,000 feet going to 700,000 feet. Another one, you know, 600 going to 650. The bigger ones, it's, you know, in some of the notes, it's like they've already become efficient. They're very tight in their space already. They are not doing this kind of shrinking, you know, they're actually looking at how do we create space for growth because you can't find another 700,000 square foot space out there. They're going to be there for 20 years. They've got to think about the fact that, you know, they're going to need space in the future and how do we grow? So growth in the future, I think is the big question mark. I mean, you had Sandeep on here talking about WeWork. I think it's going to be a heyday for co-working uh, because so many tenants are, are undersizing decisions today that as soon as we get our interest rates under control and growth becomes strong again, everyone is already packed to the gills. And, you know, they're they're moving into space smaller than they have today. So where does the growth go? It's going to go into co-working. Maybe not the co-working we saw in our downtowns. Maybe it's co-working in our near suburbs. And I don't mean 
suburbs. So I mean, like Montgomery County, you know, uh, Virginia, other places that might be a little more uh, embedded into uh, residential nearby. But I, I really think right now, um, you know, people are taking are being very uh, conservative, which, by the way, lines up with how uh, tenants and, and companies make decisions during downturns. I mean, you can look at SNL, you can look at global financial crisis, you can look at dot com. Um, you make you you basically see vacancy increase substantially with every recession because it's a conservative posture. So we're, you know, seeing all of these decisions being made. It's in the conservative posture, but people are taking much less also thinking that people are going to be working from home as a, you know, part of that strategy, which may be fine for today. But if you think about tomorrow's workforce, how do you bring people into your culture? How do you create an organization that can work, you know, again, seamlessly and collaboratively without the new people ever setting foot and having the opportunity to work with others. Um, I think it's a, it's a tough one. You know, uh, I, I think we're seeing a lot of, you know, survival for today, which is fine, but the long-term thinking is, 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 you know, something that we need to encourage uh, and again, the larger users recognize that they have to think long term. They can't. They're not going to just be able to add a couple of, you know, workstations uh, or, you know, a, a thousand workstations at the drop of a hat. So I think we're in a, you know, a space where um, good and, and prudent decisions are being made that are based in the financials. And as I mean, your perspective is unique, right? Because you're sitting there as the head of this, you know, major architectural firm. You're on the board of one of the best office developers in the country, of course. So you've seen the flight, the flight, the quality, and the challenges that they've had, as you know, in some B, you know, some B plus older buildings, um, and your ULI hat. So, so you've got this really broad perspective, and I think your observations are. Um, fascinating and, and optimistic, which is good. Also, um, I hope I hope it's right on these, um, you know, office to apartment conversions, as you say, like the one just across the street from you there on, you know, twentieth and L, and which is close enough to the existing residential, hopefully, to work. Uh, I suspect you also know that, you know, the um, the touting of the you know the two buildings up by the Washington Hilton Universal North, you know, and South buildings that's not working apparently. So there's lots and lots of issues there and. You know, I, I drove by Mazza Gallery, the former Mazza Gallery last week, and see that Tishman Spire leveled that instead of trying to repurpose it. So they'll have a terrific, you know, multifamily, you know, site at that at that location. But, you know, those things, of course, only work if the numbers work, right? And if the price per square foot when you acquire that property um, enables you to do the conversion or your basis is so low um, that you can do it. So lots and lots of challenges out there. Your, your, your comments, too, on design, of course, are, are very interesting and, and, and obviously fully informed. So if a, if a law firm came to you today and said, OK, I, I obviously don't know what the timing of people coming back to work is. I know my space has got to be efficient. As somebody said early on, right in COVID, that you've got to make the office a place people want to go, not that they have to go. And as I'm sure you you're familiar with the Leesman index and what Ted Oldham does and, and, you know, 
has calibrated over an enormous number of data points that if people are happy in their space, they're more productive. Surprise, surprise, right? So, so if you had to say, you know, what's the next, the trend, right, that we're going to see now in, in professional services development, interiors development in the next, you know, three to five years? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, and I I think that we're seeing uh, really trends that that were starting to really play out even you know long before COVID. I and you mentioned um, uh, law firms. You know, we would design and I remember a law firm thousand square foot per partner, right? And again, yep. this is a per partner per partner metric that included. Uh, you know, any of their team, uh, as well as storage and all kinds of other things. Um, and those numbers are even, you know, now in the maybe three or 400 at the most, um, and, and still continuing to drop, um, you know, uh, also the sort of, you know, kind of straight per person densities uh, might have been kind of, again, if you're just looking at, you know, the entire space and, dividing it by the number of people uh, years ago, I'd say 20 years ago, it maybe was like 250 square foot per person. And, you know, then, you know, it was probably about 200 for a while, 180. Um, and, you know, I think you see if you were to add it up today, looking at old and new space, somewhere in the 150 might be kind of the typical with, you know, firms, um, um, going down to, you know, less than a hundred square feet per person, especially uh, the management consulting firms and a lot of the, uh, you know, Deloitte's and so forth that have been involved, you know, using uh, works, workspace sharing for a long time. I mean, they really started doing that back in the late eighties, um, Ernst & Young being one of the first. So, you know, talking about where we're at with professional services, you know, we, we've been doing workplace uh, research and surveys, and some of our most recent surveys have really touched on the question of, you know, what kind of space would you like to see if, you know, in the office? And then would you go back and how, you know, how many days a week would you go back if you're, if the office had these things, right? I mean, those are two different questions, but looking at kind of the description of what do, you know, um, lawyers today uh, in responding to that question. And that's kind of, you know, a multi-generation pool that is answering this uh, question. But, um, you know, it's it's a mix and, and it's fascinating kind of what that mix is made up of. So it's, you know, it's, it, uh, again, this is not a tech company. So we're talking about law firms here. Uh, so, you know, if I were to look on this chart, um, there's a mix of kind of corporate, but also coffee shop. Mm -hmm. um, those are the top two. And then it's residential and library. So it's, it's you know, where maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that kind of corporate buttoned up image um, and an environment, and maybe a little bit of library might have been in there always because you know of that studious piece. Um, but well, you know, we used to have books. Yeah, there were books. Right, <laughs> we needed a library. 
Um, but this this kind of coffee shop residential, those are probably the new pieces that that you wouldn't have necessarily seen or expected in a law firm. But that coffee shop, that residential look and feel, along with what might have been some of the traditional pieces of a, you know, it is a, you know, a profession that is, uh, you know, it, there's a lot at stake. Um, so, you know, there that corporate um, piece, but also that, you know, that that knowledge component of of what it means to be a lawyer and to collectively be a law firm that is a, a critical part as well so being able to study being able to think to have that quiet space um so i you know i would say we're going to see uh playing with that mix in a lot of different ways you know are there going to be offices are they small do are they glass um you know do we have a full on kind of life we just finished a renovation of our space. There's a library space in our space now. I mean, it's it's stunning, actually. Um, this idea of you know real study space, quiet space, library type, you know, the coffee shop, more of that robust opportunity to um, you know kind of feel relaxed and let's grab a cup of coffee. And we're not talking about going, you know, to Starbucks, but literally, you know, that great coffee space. Um, you know, there are a lot, there's a law firm, again, I probably can't say the name of it, but one of the um law firms that we just finished in New York, major space, and they're taking, you know, a large amount of space in the upper part of the building, but they also took a large part of the ground floor of the building for their coffee shop. And, you know, again, this is part of this, you know, we're seeing it in our data and we're seeing it in what our clients want in the one-on-one, -on -one, you know, uh, project efforts. And so I, I think we're going to just see some amazing uh, investment in, you know, creating the kind of places that, as you said, are going to draw people back, but also, you know, again, it's not just, we want to count heads, but that there's, there's a value in this. There is the kind of mentoring of the next generation, the, um, you know, transfer of knowledge that creates innovation, um, the kind of uniqueness of a culture and a, uh, a community of practitioners um, that is unique from its, you know, its competition down the street. It's not just, you know, we've just got lawyers and whatever generic. This is a unique group of people who have a unique culture and you want to build that and you're going to use that space to help build that as well. So I, I think there's going to be a real doubling down and a return back, um, uh, to the, from this investment that creates the kind of excitement, not just for the people who work there, but for the clients also, by the way, uh, who, you know, love to come in and also experience, you know, something special, um, and, you know, enjoy the, the environment and the way it creates transparency for them to see all these great people who work here. Wow. Um, beyond even the team I'm working with, I'm part of something that is, that's unique, that's special, that I, you know, have no problem kind of paying top dollar for because they are the best. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that's the zone we're in. I, I don't think we're, um, 
out of the woods in terms of, you know, uh, efficiencies and, and issues around, uh, you know, uh, what does this cost? I mean, we're not having a conversation about cost of space, but there has definitely been an escalation of costs because of supply chain issues that, you know, the, the line always goes up and never seems to come down after the supply chain gets solved. Um, but, you know, look, all of our professions are being challenged with AI. How do we use AI to enable the uh, human or how does AI run over us and, you know, take our clients and, and make us obsolete? And I think we're all in that that space as well um, to bring the human part that can't be replicated in the AI. And more and more that human part is going to happen, you know, in that collective where we're, you know, together and really uh, debating and discussing what is the right solution for our clients in real time as human beings together in a space. So, yeah, I, I mean, Diane, you just touched on so many interesting issues and in building, you know, the coffee shop, which I would call collaboration spaces, right? That's what we're trying to create in all these professional services and particularly the law firms. We, I, I could continue this for hours, but I want to um, come to a close here and let you get back to other important things you're doing. Um, and there's a lot of other questions I wanted to ask you, but let me just ask you one or two closing questions, um, some more reflective ones. So if, if you look back over your incredible uh, career, what would you say is the best business advice you ever received? Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. You know, oh man, there's so many things. Um, I, I guess... You know, I, I, as someone who, um, you know, and I'm sure you are this, I mean, you're so excellent in what you do and so many of the people that, you know, are listening, they're just so excellent at what they do. Um, you know, taking the time to get input and advice from others on issues or, or you know, matters that you need to make decisions on is so well worth it. Um, and, you know, again, we kind of feel like, uh, we need to just go with what we think. I've always found getting input from others. Um, it, it just, you know, again, it helps me to see around a corner that I didn't know was there and, um, makes me better. Okay, great. So last question is, what would you, with all, all these great things you've accomplished, what would you, looking back, advise your 25-year-old self today um, um, as you were going forward into your career? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, you know, I think all of us probably carry around a little too much hesitancy, you know, uh, when we were younger. And in hindsight, you're like, wow, why was I so, you know, fearful or hesitant about something? Um, I, I think, and I try to say this to young people, um, to go ahead and explore anything that you are feeling compelled to, you know, to try out, to not be afraid to. And in fact, this was, you know, I, I would say my own experience of leaving the profession, doing my MBA, going into real estate, but then coming back. I, I think I was a million percent better as a design professional by having gone and then come back than if I had stayed in. And um, 
I probably could have gone even, I could have, <laughs> you know, I should have just done that in another country or something, you know, but I, I, I still think I was really, you know, pretty much on a, on a narrow path. I think I could have broadened that even um, because it's, you realize that um, you only gain, you know, um, you're still you and you carry that with you into these new experiences. And then those new experiences really do enrich all of what you might've, you know, started to build. Um, so I, you know, I, I always try to encourage people not to worry about, are you going to leave Gensler and try something? I'm like, yeah, go ahead and then come back. We would love it. Great. Well, Diane, we're lucky as a profession and an industry that you came back and, and, and continue to play a really important role in leading and thinking and innovating. I thank you so much for the time today. I wish you nothing but good luck coming up at, in LA at the ULI meeting, which I know will be a great success. And I look forward to seeing you there. And uh, I hope we get to talk some more about all these wonderful issues. Well, Jay, I look forward to seeing you too. It sounds like you're going to be at our party. So I'll at least see you then. Great. Thank you, Diane. All righty. Bye-bye.